0: Hi and welcome to episode fifty-three of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today um, I have a new guest, uh, Dr. Dwayne Meller. Hi, Dwayne. Hi, Lauren. How are you doing? So we've been Good, char- yeah, we've been chatting a bit um, offline about all kinds of stuff, and um, I think um, before we get into today's uh, topic, I think we should. Have you introduced yourself to, to all of the listeners? So if perhaps you could tell us a bit, bit more about yourself, who you are, your research interests, sort of past and, and current, and then we'll go from there.
1: Well, as um, you say, I'm Dwayne Miller. Um, I, my background is as a dietitian. I qualified back in 97. Um, I was lucky. I did my undergraduate dissertation working with full-time elite judoka, including the, uh, the um, GB coach at the time. So I did have start off in sports. But then I sort of drifted into clinical practice in terms of diabetes, so I spent many years working in diabetes, did my PhD um, in the medical school in Hull, the Hull York Medical School, and that was in chocolate and diabetes, so that was fun, and it was actually harder to recruit than you think when you're trying to give people free chocolate, because they, they think there's a catch. <laughs> then I took up a lecturing post in Chester, and currently I'm an associate, sorry, assistant professor um, in dietetics at the University of Nottingham.
0: Excellent. So, there, there's a number of reasons why I wanted to do a podcast with you, and I know you've got a number of areas of expertise which perhaps will get you back on um, in the future, uh, one being diabetes, and as you had alluded to there, some, some uh, stuff on like polyphenols and chocolate and various other things, which um, could be uh, someone's guilty pleasure, I think, but I um, have recently had some podcasts... Um, which have delved into areas that loosely would touch upon sort of evidence, pseudoscience, that sort of thing. And it's an interesting area, particularly at at the time of us recording this podcast. um, In the past few weeks, there's been quite a lot of um, heated debates on uh, Twitter with various experts. Um, You know, uh, it's the usual sort of carbohydrate arguments, that sort of thing. But what comes from that? is how people filter that information, whether they're reading scientific papers, journals, magazines, newspapers, and obviously there's some crazy stuff that you see in newspapers that is information interpreted a certain way by a journalist and so on. But at the end of the day, us as practitioners, you know, we it's a difficult thing to filter that information in that science, particularly when you take it from a research setting and you try and apply that to a single person, and it's sort of an N of one scenario, or for the listeners that aren't coaches or practitioners to, to themselves. So what I wanted to do is talk sort of about evidence-based practice, um, and that also appears to be something that I think is getting a bit abused, is this sort of title of evidence-based, and I, I'm an evidence-based practitioner, or you should be evidence-based, and that also tends to be taken um, in the wrong Context. I've already said context. So, um,
1: I thought context was planned for this podcast. I know I did
0: say that, but I can't. I'll, I'll try and I'll try and re- re- reduce the numbers of uh, c words that I come up with. So, so between, um I mean, what, let's sort of define what we mean then by evidence or evidence based.
1: Well, it needs to be put into the situation. I think I avoided the C word then, and that means there's, there's, it's almost seems a triangle. And I've seen so sort of a number of uh, sort of physiotherapy colleagues here use a triangle to define it, where you've got the research as one component, and you need to put the research in terms of the population. And we'll talk about sort of that, that PCOS type approach and, and cover that because that's important. Then you need to look at the individual group you're actually working with currently. And part of the decision is, is is how those match. Then the third bit, which which I think tends to be forgotten because it's everyone goes on the evidence and forget the based part of this, is looking at the practitioner, be that a sports nutritionist or a clinician, their experience, their knowledge, and their ability to use that information critically. And What happens too much is you get the research being directly applied into a population or individual without that interpretation. Um, And there's various models of sort of developing how people interpret information from this is what I see, this is what I try, through complex decision-making to build up. And the only way of ultimately building up is through experience and trying things out, talking to people, looking at case studies because case studies often sort of seen as the... The um, foundations or the uh, lower class of evidence uh, in the the pyramid but they can also be used as a way of testing, this was shown in a group in a different country, a different setting a slightly different sport applied to this case and then we can build up a picture and we shouldn't see this hierarchy of pyramid which I think we probably need to to have a chat about as well, but it's almost more of a cycle where we actually come and see how it can be applied and developed and move forward refined, um, you know, almost you know, from a, for a setting looking at a, a cycle of audit or a cycle of, of review that you find something new, you try it, you test it, you measure it and the other thing is, is sort of as sort of practitioners as evidence-informed or evidence-based practitioners, we should be collecting data on what we do to actually fully evaluate whether it works. And that's where sort of, you know, the much maligned case study is is so valuable and is such a valuable learning tool, developmental tool, and and also sort of working with uh, uh, sort of uh, athletes, clients. Um, you, You can actually see that if you do it right and you share that data with them, you're empowering them. Yeah. Because ultimately, we we know, particularly with athletes, you know, sometimes our role, our, our impact in them, it's quite small, mm. but it needs to fit in with their belief structure. So it's a triangle of science, the individual, and that sort of almost sort of undefinable practitioner skill. Yeah, there's some juicy topics there,
0: Duane, and um, I'm pleased. I'm pleased you mentioned the importance of case studies. Um, it's something that I definitely believe in I've you know we've published two case studies so far and we're working on uh, another two currently and that process for me has been a fascinating experience but um we don't need to get into that but you you just mentioned a number of sort of sort of cornerstones if you like of, of, of this triangle that you've mentioned and um science is you know I mean we this podcast is called we do science um and there's a lot of there's a lot of people that have their own idea about what science is and, and they grasp it in different ways. And I think it's worth defining what science is if we're, if we're even to use it in this, in this uh, triangle.
1: Uh, I think that goes for, for most things, yeah, including the, the word we're not allowed to say needs <laughs> the proper definition. Yeah. Um, and then more people will be happy with it. Yeah. So in yeah. terms of science, it's a, it's a rigorous reproducible, Methodology, which actually tests whether a behaviour, an action intervention has an impact on an outcome that we want to and can measure. I think mean, that's important, think we can measure it. Um, within that you have various issues in terms of idea of bias, um, the idea of confounding, and the idea of robustness or the ability to apply um, the findings of one situation to a, a different situation, so uh, the extrapolation of that information. Um, so how stretched is it to, to move in a situation? So I think it's it's that rigorous and systematic approach where that can be applied to a case study, which is a way of finding things out. But if you actually look, and everyone focuses on randomised controlled trials, you know, during my PhD working with chocolate, I realized that you know, I had a chocolate, which I thought was good. It had, had, had the uh, flavonoids in that, which we, we thought were having the effect. And we had a controlled chocolate, which you know, ultimately would look slightly different, taste slightly different. And um, people generally have experience of eating chocolate before we put them onto research to eating chocolate. Mm. So there's prior experience. So in terms of a placebo, we're already introducing a potential bias in there. If you look at any sort of nutrition studies, unless you're looking at sort of powders and pills, which have other issues, because we said another podcast about contamination and those sort of things, mm. if you're giving someone food, you know, people know the difference between broccoli and sprouts. Mm. So, how do you blind that? And if you're looking at a full diet, there's a whole factor of different biological compounds, belief aspects timing aspect, which adds to the confounding. So you could almost argue to a certain extent, and this is quite controversial, so I hope that's okay, that randomised controlled trials by their nature and design are trying to test one intervention against another. Mm. So unless they're very, very well set up and carefully designed in nutrition, they're going to have biased data. Uh, a good example is, is one that's been bounced around was the uh, very low-carbohydrate uh, diet, I think it was the Zano, um, published last year, 2014. And and that actually set out to test, test a very low-carbohydrate, I think it was ketogenic diet, against a low-fat diet. But if you actually look at the setup, because they're reducing carbohydrate down to I think it was around about 50, 40, 50 grams a day from a typical diet around about um, 200, 250 grams. That was giving a bigger deficit in terms of energy restriction than reducing the low fat down to 35 to 30. So by the nature of the study, and there's a very detailed study and there's other abstracts which are well worth reading, which, are, which is another thing that a critical scientist should do is don't just just the paper look at the background, um, is that study had set up a bias. Then, by critically looking at it, you can go into there and find that what do they actually do? So you've set this challenge to eat this diet. What did they actually eat? And their energy intake from carbohydrate was around about the 30-35% mark, which isn't a very low. It's actually just a low. Yeah, we need definitions there as well. We need to uh, initiate. But it, it, it's a different thing, and that will affect the results. Also, if you look at the paper and go back, because a lot of papers are presented at conferences as abstracts, There's other abstracts around there and there's an abstract from that data that actually suggests that the lower carbohydrate, high fat diet didn't have an impact on appetite hormones which is a lot of people talking about, oh, high fat diets are better for appetite, that group in one of their abstracts suggested it didn't but that didn't make it to the paper. Uh. The other thing that's worth looking at um, and again this is getting you know, publication nerdy, which is always good fun. Is a lot of yeah. You know, every intervention study, so that be that dietary, sort of exercise, psychology, or pharmaceutical, realistically should be registered before it starts. Mm. And there's trial registers. The WHO has them. Uh, there's clin trials that govern the states. There's a the UK-based one. There's ones in Australia, New Zealand, and, and the Dutch ones are probably the most uh, widely used one it's always worth looking through those because then you can see what data is coming out and which ones haven't been published. It's looking a little bit along like the old trial sort of route. You know. And and that is sort of quite interesting that you can actually see. Sometimes, uh, and as a peer reviewer, I've, I've done this, um, actually looked at a paper, checked out their trial registration, which, okay, that unblinds a peer review, which is another issue. But that then tells me whether their primary objectives they started off as are the ones who have actually written the paper on
0: because
1: if you design a study to do one thing and you find something else is that good science because your rigorous methodology set up to start off with you've kind of changed because you've accidentally found something else that's useful to then do the proper science later on so it's a and scientists, and I'm guilty of it myself when I write, and I doubt there's many scientists that have not done this, you actually write papers in a way to get the message across. Yeah. And when, when people critique my papers and talk to me, they says, yeah, I know that that's there, but I played the game with a peer reviewer. And I didn't do that analysis that way. I did it this way, you know, intention to treat or per protocol, because that fitted the data better. Mm. Um, have the caveats in the end, the limitations are normally in there, but it's balanced, and scientists will try. Otherwise, it won't get published. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it's a it's a game that you know when people reading it they need to be aware that what's published not necessarily is the the whole truth and there's a bigger picture out there. Yeah. Well, I'm pleased you said that because people
0: will look at something that's published as you know the ultimate sort of evidence that exists out there and obviously you know and we can talk about this a bit um you know you've got a lot of people who have a you know a great degree of either conscious or unconscious bias and then they're sort of cherry picking information to support their arguments and so on and and this is people that are using science so of course there's good science and bad science and um we've discussed this with a number of other guests like um, i did a podcast about this with with kevin tipton and um I mean, actually, one of the things that Kevin said that I really like, um, which he said in one of the lectures he did for us on the ISSN Diploma Programme, was you know, this importance of being uh, sceptical but open-minded. And that actually is... It takes some skill um, to do that. And um, I've tried to t- apply that sort of concept myself, and it really has changed the way that I look at things. And that in itself is quite scary, because then you start finding that... There is so much good science, but there's also so much bad science out there. Um, frightening, really. I mean, I hadn't until I embarked upon both having a few papers published, but also I'm a reviewer on several journals as well. I hadn't, I hadn't any idea about this stuff until I got into it, and it's, it's, uh, it's. I know it's topical on Twitter right now, but there are papers that are getting out that maybe shouldn't be in. You know. It, it's interesting, though, that how much of that can influence what journalists read and tell the masses, because, the, you know, the likes of you and I, we're very small numbers of people here, um, compared to the millions of people that are being influenced by how this information is interpreted over time. Um, but it's all under the name of science.
1: And, and, and so the interesting, you know, I'll pick a few things there, it's... <laughs> Yeah, I have personal beliefs, but I don't drag them into science, you know, um, it's sort of mainly because I'm sort of tight-fisted, I'm a vegetarian, it means eating food's cheaper, and I have to be more imaginative because I like cooking. Uh, and I could quite easily put an argument one-sided, based on the science, that a purely plant-based diet is the best way of preventing diabetes. In the same way that people are advocating a high-fat diet, yeah. but I refuse yeah. because I know there's a number of different ways of doing that, and that wouldn't be scientifically sound. Um, so, sort of, I, I put skepticism there. I challenge myself and sort of think, and yeah, th- there are options, and there are all you know, there are a number of answers. There is not one answer to, in, in terms of science. There's degrees of certainty and degrees of doubt, mm. and I think that links nicely to what you're saying about the press. You know, because a good scientist, as you mentioned, Kevin, who's one of the, the very good scientists out there, um, would always put a caveat or a doubt or a maybe or suggests or this is providing further evidence or this doesn't support, oh. you'll never say yes or no. Oh. Oh. The media won't like that. The media likes this, this diet, you know, cutting this out of your diet will solve this problem where scientists will go in response to in that and in, in, in sort of working with the media, you know, they, they do, to their credit, try and get some balance in there. The scientists will say, well, this is suggested this. However, this could work. And that then gives a softer message than the person advocating this hard line based on a selected view of the data. And, and I think that's something that we probably need to promote to the, the, the public and also journalists, you know, that certainty in science is not healthy. Yeah. You know, science moves, science evolves, science changes. We're not arguing with ourselves. We're not changing our mind on what's good and bad for you. It's evolving as science does. You, know, you wouldn't still want to drive a car from the 1940s and 50s when you've got much more comfortable cars with air conditioning, electric windows, and power steering now. But no one questions that. When you talk about health advice and nutrition advice, people say, oh, you've changed your mind. No, the science has evolved. We've learnt more. Actually, we just need to get a better way of communicating it.
0: Actually, my father would be the complete opposite to that. <laughs> he, he avoids wanting to drive anything that's got any modern technology in it. Um, but that actually, uh, I mean, that makes me think, you know, as a, as a practitioner, something, when, when I'm looking at this science, I always have to bear in mind that the individual's preferences are mm. very important, and... That in itself is a powerful strategy in whether or not your intervention is likely to work or not because, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff, particularly in nutrition, certainly boils down to the ability of that person to be consistent. And, you know, unlike surgery where cut them open, stitch them up, whatever, this rely... You know, our work tends to rely on someone repeating those behaviours on a regular basis, and they have to actually want to do it. And as we... Actually, we talked a bit offline um and we also talked about this you know this stuff a bit and the impo- uh, and how fickle athletes can be um and belief is an important factor and there so sort of, that ties back into the problem that we have with this science or pseudoscience or or how that science is interpreted because belief is a factor and how that information is 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 communicated, you know, is it, is it sexy information or is it just downright boring? And of course that's what the, you know, the press want to make it sexy because it sells papers. Um, but on the other hand, you know, like meat gives everyone can, you know, red meat will give everyone cancer, for example, you know, um, that was a big, big topic, uh, uh, last year, I think it was. Um, but I mean, us as practitioners, we have to learn to like Kevin says, you know, be sceptical but open-minded. I mean, as far as approaches to knowledge are concerned, would you, I mean, do you feel that we should be differentiating science from non-science but still including the non-sciencey
1: stuff? Well, if you're working with sort of individuals, they're going to come with their own history, Hmm. which, you know, know, is more sociological, it's their, their background, their beliefs, their intake and you've got this body of knowledge as a practitioner and you've got to meet somewhere in the middle and that's where the counselling te- techniques going, the the communication skills and, and some of the educational skills sort of around the, the idea of um, constructive, the sort of challenging their beliefs, understanding their beliefs, understanding their behaviours and then looking for points where so some of their beliefs might be completely unscientific, but you realise with experience and through working with your population group and those individuals that, yeah, that may not make sense, it may not have any scientific basis, but it works for them. But there might be some areas where they're willing to change where the impact will be had. So it's a, it's, it's not a case of sort of bringing in the non-science, it's appreciating someone's baseline, and working in the areas you can because ultimately if they do change the areas you suggest which are possibly more scientifically based or have an underpinning basis and uh, we can talk about how you, how you define that because yeah. you know, there are yeah. some definitions not great ones and the very sort of um, much in European language because it's European regulation type stuff, you can actually pinpoint it and then go this will work in this area so it may be timing it may be drinks, it may be snack behaviour, you know I remember, sort of, as a student dietitian working with these judo players. The only thing I got them to do was eat breakfast. So they had a significant increase in, you know, sort of uh, carbohydrate intake because they could get toast before they went on a ten ten k run. Because yeah. the ten k yeah. did nothing for their sport yeah. apart from getting them mentally conditioned to be able to do a ten k run, yeah. which is quite an important thing for yeah. many sports. It, it just toughens yeah. it. And the coach knew that. The athletes knew that. But they found that it sort of early in the morning, they found that having the test before made the run easier, there could have been some science there, you know, it could be more just, they got up a little bit earlier and a bit more awake to do the run, <laughs> um, but it worked for them, and that led to other gains and, and sort of, it worked on that, very simple things, but it's not necessarily changing the whole pattern, they were still doing sort of the sweating off the weights with all co- competitions because that's what they, they didn't feel prepared if they didn't do that, mm. you yeah. Yeah, you know, we know, as a science point of view, not great, not ideal. But you know, little wins. I think he's going through those little wins of science. It may propagate other wins. And um, I think we mentioned sort of the idea of definitions, because if you're looking at sort of health claims around nutrition, oh. uh, you know, <laughs> that's probably another debate. But yeah. it has to have a mechanism, and it has to have something that's identified as causing that, mm. and sort of good evidence in the population, then you get some sort of spiel out the other side and whether we're looking at we it's not just relying on the study, we need to have a bit of science understanding how it might work mm. and I think the key thing there is having that bit of science that then we can talk to our clients and actually explain to them, okay, this is what we, th- we think might be useful for you and it might have this effect. If you notice that effect, you might want to keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. I did a
0: very interesting podcast with Dr. Maya Ranchudis on the placebo effect and that whole thing's fascinating, you know, this business of um, placebo and nocebos and as a strategy in itself of course you know, and I've certainly found this in my own practice, you know, how you dress up the information, you know, do you do you give someone some nutritional recommendations as sort of scribbled on a piece of paper or do you actually make the effort to present it Um, in a well-typed-out document, you know, uh, do you put some charts and graphs in their assessment results to show that, you know, they've lost X amount of body fat or whatever. You know, these are tools that have interesting influences on on their behaviour and your strategies and your interventions. And um, that science plays part of a role in that, doesn't it? If you've got some evidence... it, it. Maybe it enhances that
1: placebo effect. I mean, what do you think about that? I don't think there's a few things. i tried to actually look at placebo effects in my PhD and misery fails. <laughs> um, the, the, the reason being, because it's was doing randomised controlled trials, the people who volunteered to take part had a different personality type. Right. Generally, um, it it was based on a concept called attachment theory. Mm. So they're more likely to have secure attachment than the general population I was trying to recruit from, Um, which which is an interesting finding in itself. Um, And so we couldn't actually distinguish whether the response to placebo could have been attributed to that because they're all wanting it to work. Um, And I think that's that's something to, to, to think about when you're working with clients, whether they want it to work. And if they're wanted to work, they're more likely to try things. I think the other thing about the placebo is you can break it down. You've got two aspects there. You've talked about. You've got the therapeutic relationship, which is the practitioner-client relationship, which can have an impact. But also, you've got the um, concept of biofeedback, mm. as in terms of providing data. So. You're going beyond the simple placebo effect of, of the uh, randomised controlled trial. The, the fact they're engaged in this process, they're attached to it, they have a benefit. But also, you're adding in these therapeutic benefits in practice, which would go beyond the placebo effect. You'll see, see in research, and as well as you know, occasionally providing data. And and you know, the whole concept of branding is in there as well. You know, if you're buying to a brand, you, you, you're attaching value to it. Yeah, you know, and, and yeah, you know, if someone's paying paying for a service, do they tend to respond better than if they're not paying for a service? Yeah. And and that, then you've got the concepts of ownership loss and those sort of things, which are well documented in economic theory, which you probably haven't really investigated properly in in this sort of area at all. But it's likely to apply. Yeah, you know, if you pay for something, you want it to work.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big believer in that. I I find in my own practice, I prefer my clients to commit to working with me for a period of time that they usually pay up front for and i get a much more committed client like you say um and every now and then i'll i'll work with um elite athletes or whatever on a sponsored basis they just can't afford to work um, paid to work with me but you know we develop a relationship uh, that's mutually beneficial but they don't pay for it it's not the same it just isn't the same. And I think you're right. You, you, don't, you don't just need to buy into it intellectually, emotionally. You also need to buy into it financially, economically. It's a
1: powerful part of that process. Well, well there needs to be some sort of cost. It might not be financial cost. Yeah. It might be that, yeah, or there's a, some sort of give back. Yeah. You know, by, by sort of, you tend to be more conservative if you're. Yeah, you're spending money, and more risky if you're you're going to lose something. Yeah. and and, and it's those sort of risk, sort of risk, um, sort of benefit, sort of ratios come into yeah. it. And there's a yeah. lot of stuff the, the whole concept of behaviour change around nudge theory is heavily weighted on that. You know, and also, you know, if they are, it's how you compare to someone else. Yeah. If someone else is doing that and they're good, you know, I want that. Yeah. And you see that sort of throughout sport, you know, um, in terms of equipment, you know, sadly, sort of in the past, uh, in, in the areas of doping as well, they tend to propagate. Um, and it's just it's human behavior. And it's actually, a lot of these perceived aspects is, there's a whole host of things, as, a, as you was we talking about, the buying into it. Yeah, you know, the therapeutic relationship. You know, I've had times when I was working in clinical practice where you hardly do anything, you hardly give any advice, but they continue to improve. Yeah. It's almost like your seats are magical. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's all because of that good relationship you've built up with an individual. And you know, to extent it doesn't make sense to pass them on mm-hmm. to another individual. There's right. countless cases in the medical world where. You know, you have two doctors. One does all the tests in the sun, prescribes all the latest medication. The other one does hardly any tests, talks and listens to the individual and takes them off drugs. They both get the same results. And that bond between human beings, particularly in sort of long-term conditions, you know, diabetes is a great example. You know, you can't undervalue that relationship between two individuals, someone listening, someone understanding, someone trying to help someone find the solutions that they can work with. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. Um,
0: actually, I've got uh, Professor Andy Lane coming back on. He's been on before and we're going to talk about, he, you know, he's a sort of sports psychologist is his, his main thing. Um, we're going to talk about uh, communication. Um, and I think that's a really, really important strategy. However, you know, whether we're strength and conditioning coaches, dietitians, sports nutritionists, personal trainers, that, that thing that you just mentioned, that the importance of that relationship, the, the way in which you communicate is perhaps the most important thing you know as i mentioned before you you know we talk about diets you know is it which is the best diet well actually it's the one that you can stick to consistently is uh it's yes. is frankly it, isn't it and that takes us back to individual preferences and blah 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 blah, blah you know and if, if if they if it needs to have some pixie dust attached to it for you to buy into it and believe it and that's That's what gets your compliance, then maybe that is a factor, you know, in what makes that outcome more successful on that particular type of diet. Um, And we shouldn't poo poo it, despite our own biases, however evidence based we like to feel we are. Actually, so that's a segue. So let's bring us back into this idea of being an evidence based practitioner. Um, You referred earlier to this. This, there's
1: this hierarchy of evidence, maybe we should yeah. explore, let's explore that. So, so this, the historical hierarchy, um, <laughs> sort of the classic model, where you have at the bottom, you have your, your case studies. Mm. So these are where you make your first observations of something, and, and then say, oh, there might be something here. Then you tend to go for cohort cross-section. Uh, the, the, that's good because you can do it quickly. You can find out whether something happens at the same. It seems to be happening at the same time as the other. But there's no temporal. There's no time effect, so you cannot suggest causality. Then you go to case control. So you you find out a characteristic you want to look at, and you match it to people who haven't got the characteristic, and track back to see if there's some sort of link there. Um, that has its limitations because you can overestimate relationships, particularly in things that are quite common. Then the next step up there is your um, prospective cohorts, so you get a group of people and you watch them for a period of time, ma- mapping behaviours, it could be exercise, it could be smoking, alcohol, we're interested in diet, so we'll say diet, and then several years down the line you see if something's happened to them, you know, they've won gold, gold medals or they've died of heart disease, depends on your outcome, and then you look back to see if there's any sort of impact, and that's where a lot of the saturated fat controversies come in recently. Mm. Then sort of getting towards the top of the triangle, you've got your randomised controlled trials. You've probably got sort of, sort of less well-controlled trials underneath there where you actually deliberately give one group something and give the other group something different. And look that shows true cause and effect in theory. We've already mentioned that can have problems with diet because how do you know it's the one thing you've changed where you know if you reduce fat in a diet, what happens to the carbohydrate the protein? And it's not just that because there's... Lots of different sorts of fats. There's not just even the three types of fats that everyone talks about. You know, there's many types of saturated fats which are different. And we know that now. If you look at the sort of protein, you know, you've got the whole. You, you go back to your basic amino acids, but they combine in, you know, nearly infinite number of ways. Yeah. You know, then you've got carbohydrates. <laughs> they vary as well. So you suddenly got this really complicated picture. It's not the same as a white pill or a blue, you know, the blue pill or the red pill as you get in the Matrix. Diets are far more complicated. And that's where we need to be more cautious and not discount all of this below. We need the bits to link in. Aside from the triangle, you've also got the animal stuff, the bench stuff from the lab, which gives you the mechanism. And you need the mechanism to link to the evidence, which hopefully is consistent. And if that's consistent, hopefully you get the good systematic reviews and meta-analysis which combine that. What we need to be, and going back to you say sort of, being sort of critical and skeptical is what are you losing by condensing down this data?
0: Mm.
1: Mm. We've already said food is complex and you know, the reductionism you get from trying to get this complex intervention down to one number, what are you losing? And that is a risk when you just go into the, the systematic reviews and national analysis, particularly when diets going in there, the heterogeneous, the studies are not all the same. And you need to take that into account, so there might be a lot of noise which washes out any effects. So yeah, if you go for the, probably the topical one at saturated fat at the moment, there's less evidence that very low intakes of saturated fat are beneficial. I think the evidence is fairly clear there. That doesn't mean we necessarily start to increase it again, because currently you know, the, the slightly lower the, the 10 to 15 percent aren't bad. it's not bad for us. And there's no evidence of higher intakes being good for us. You know, other fats and what we substitute in there is where the evidence is. So we need to be careful that we don't have a blinkered sort of this null hypothesis approach that it's either this answer or that answer. Yeah. We need to take totality of the picture together to get a reliable sort of uh, message. Which yeah you know, sounds like I'm sitting on a fence and getting splinters, but it means you've actually taken in all the evidence rather than just the, systemat- the, the, the one message you're wanting to, yeah. to back up an argument.
0: Yeah. As a, I, I, I use the analogy of a toolbox quite a bit, um, both on this podcast but also with my own students. And I like to present it as, look, you know, in, in that sort of toolbox of evidence and skills and, and whatnot, there's all kinds of stuff that's in there. And you do need to understand... You know what tools you've got, you need to know which, what's the evidence behind each tool and in what scenario you would use those tools and you know the mechanisms by which that might work. That's why we need to know, you know, as a, as a sports nutritionist, I believe I need to also know about physiology and biochemistry and even to a certain extent biomechanics and all that sort of thing so that I can understand which tools are appropriate in my interventions with my clients. But at the end of the day, as a practitioner, I'm, I'm interested in outcomes. So I don't want to get my knickers in a twist over what level of evidence, you know, this and that says. If at the end of the day, I know that my client needs to win that medal and, you know, we need to keep them healthy. But there are priorities that different people will have. But at the end of the day, that athlete's priority, his career, his, you know, his life is about winning medals, and and that's a different perspective sometimes. And it is definitely fair to say, like you say, the you know sort of another view on that, the sort of red and blue pill or purple or whatever colours they were. I'm not such a matrix geek as you, obviously. Um, but the um, you know the, there is more than one way to skin a cat. And,
1: yeah, and, and I think I'm just just sort of remembering because what what you're doing, and this is sort of from. Sort of a, a medicals perspective is you go on from this full systematic analytical approach when you're new when you get more experience and you should sort of, and it's hard to actually teach you know you go on to and this way in, in between the two there's a risk you get when you're experienced you look for patterns and you look for patterns where things will work and things won't work in between this fully systematic learner model and the idea of being this sort of experienced practitioner where you're recognising patterns there's this where you use hypothesis and deduction, so you're not quite Sherlock Holmes yet, but you're you're getting there. And that's where, if you're not careful, you can slip into being not you not seeing all the tools. So you're sort sort of you're trying to be somewhere in between the two. And I think if if you start feel yourself stumbling, say, "Am I being biased?" Yeah. Go back to actually yeah. looking at the full picture. But when you get sort of working on patterns, you're right. Sometimes it's not vital to look at the whole picture you're looking at what's in front of you and as long as you've been safe long as you're you know, sort of meeting the basic needs for for not causing ill health um i agree yeah i mean that actually yeah. that so, that because,
0: makes um, me yeah that makes me think of of something that i know i know we've lectured on the stuff uh, on my program but it isn't talked about enough and it's this idea of scope of practice um, which I, you know, it ties into, well, this conversation about evidence-based practice because just because you're interested in something and it may, it may b- sort of cross over into your own scope, um, by virtue of, you know, it might be a similar field. Like for example, um, and this one going to be a controversial little area we're going to get into, but, um, Personal training, strength and conditioning coaching, that sort of thing. That doesn't mean, though, that you should be going out there um, assessing, you know, whether or not someone's insulin resistant or, um, you know, has got a cortisol adrenal dysfunction or whatever. There are some difficult areas. And I've been down that path myself. I mean, I, you know, hands up. Many years ago, I got into all that sort of stuff because I didn't have an appreciation, A, a for the science or the evidence or how to interpret all this stuff, but also, Scope of practice, which I, f- I feel very strongly about now, because as a practitioner, if I stay within my scope of practice, I can do a bloody, good, a bloody good job of that. And then you learn when to refer. And then you and whoever you refer to collectively as a team, we can do a bloody good job on that person rather than this need to gain the stuff that we're just not really qualified for but you know how do you determine what you're even qualified for I mean I know that's a sort of a hornet's nest to a certain extent
1: uh, I think you know to, to put some um, context into that conversation um I think you've got to you really sort of appreciate where the personal trainer might be coming from is that uh, to have a label of sort of adrenal fatigue or leaky gut it gives a hook to handle some advice on yeah whether that's good we would we be highly critical of it because they're both sort of fairly uh, grey areas, you know. I've actually worked with endocrinologists and, you know, we have actually diagnosed adrenal fatigue and it's quite complicated. Yeah, yeah. And it's been published as a case series in uh, Gulf War Veterans. Yeah, you know, that's that, that's an example. Yeah, that's an example of where it happened. But in general popular the, the concept is pretty vague and sparse. And but you know, the, the key thing is recognizing patterns that are not familiar and no trust for help because you can maintain confidence in, in individuals if, you, if you're talking to them. And, you know, yeah, likewise, when working with dietitians, dietitians probably don't talk enough about exercise. There's papers on it. There's data on it. But is that because they're not confident to do it or they don't know how to do it or they don't know what advice to give and when to stop? You know, we have some great ones out there that are personal trainers. They're fantastic at it. But it's actually knowing that we need to have overlaps. We have a strong identity of what our roles are and we shouldn't lose them. But we need to know is, okay, um, and this is why social media can be great, you're not going to know everything. Yeah, you know, I refuse to call myself what? an expert.
0: Sorry,
1: excuse me. I refuse to call myself an expert. Yeah. I don't, yeah. You know, other people can use that definition, but I don't. I know how to find... A lot of information quickly. Some of that's in my head. I know where to find it elsewhere. Yeah. But I also yeah. know people to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. And by talking to those people, that doesn't make me less good at my job. I feel it makes me stronger at my job because mm. that means I'm giving the best outcome to what, whether it's a task, a paper, or um, an individual I'm working with. It's all about getting the right skills there because we all. Try yeah, and I think we tend to get siloed into our own little professional um, groupings, and then we start against you know, other groupings. and I don't think that's helpful no. because different people have different different skills. and Yeah, most people have made mistakes in their career and done slightly things that they probably wouldn't do in hindsight. Mm. But you learn yeah. from them, and if you're open about it and you share it, that's got to be a good thing because yeah, people out there they they can do the same thing. and I think well. I've messed up now, that's it, I've got to find another way. No, learn from it, move on. And that's the idea of being a reflective practitioner, which, you know, that's probably something I didn't mention, linked to the practice, but you need to reflect and learn on what you do. You know, because sometimes, you know, yeah, the evidence isn't there and how do you, how do you actually either develop it or make it safe? Yeah, yeah.
0: No, actually, uh, reflective practice is um, something I'm very into. I'm um, sort of in the final stages of, of doing my professional doctorate, and that's a huge factor for me, is reflecting upon my own experience, which has been a very, I've gone from being very unevidence-based to very evidence-based, and um, I've learned a lot from that, and and learning about what is it actually makes your interventions work, and much of what we talked about, you know, communication and Buy in and that relationship, and that just to bring us back to that point that we just raised about scope of practice, that relationship's important, particularly you know, for the listeners that are personal trainers. You know, I used to be a personal trainer a long time ago, and that relationship is is a very special one that you have with clients, which most practitioners don't have because you don't see them that often. Whereas PTs, you know, two, three, maybe four times a week, you're with someone that's an, an amazingly powerful thing um whereas now as a, you know as a, as a as a nutritionist i tend to see people you know once a month um i mean that's a big difference and i think that it you know it, it can be difficult but it's that that thing of well when do you refer and it's like you said learning to refer at the appropriate times um really can enhance your practice and build a referral network i should probably do a podcast all about that stuff cuz you know, for the younger, less experienced practitioners, you know, that's an incredibly great way to build up your practice is referring. Because you do a good yeah. job. You do a good job on so many levels. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, as I said, you know, I'm interested in outcomes. I just want to get a good result. And that, that comes back to you in so many ways.
1: Happy client referrals oh, every time. <coughs> And I think the 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 idea is when you you're new and want to make a stamp yourself, you want to be doing everything you want to be, you want to yeah. build your work so yeah. you don 't want to let anything go yeah. and, and yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's academia through to practice you know, by collaboration it makes you stronger you get opportunities you' would never have by collaborating and talking to people you know, you know, you know typically we wouldn 't have this conversation apart from networks that have stumbled across each other Absolutely. And, you know, and and there 's so much learning going on. And it's actually making things stronger. I think, you know, I've seen sort of messages from about sort of this idea about whether it should be dietitians or nutritionists working with athletes. I think it should be both because not all dietitians have enough. Some are great at it, but not enough have, always have enough of the physiology, particularly around exercise and the lifestyle knowledge around exercise of athletes, which a strength and conditioning coach would do. However, a strength and conditioning coach might not know some of the more clinical aspects of nutrition or some of the little tweaks you do with food modification and a practical cooking skill. But working together, you get the best of both worlds. I agree, agree. And I think that's something if we're not together, we lose. So that sort of brings me
0: to my final sort of thing that I wanted to talk about because we're getting to the end of this podcast now is, is you know, in our view of science, and interpreting research and so on. Obviously, we, you know, we get into this idea of peer review. And mm. um, you're a, a, a reviewer, I'm a reviewer. We understand, uh, and, and, and you've published, I've just started publishing stuff. I understand that concept now of peer review. And, and it's not perfect either. But there's, there's another idea to peer review that I like. And that is, you know, I'm um, registered with the Sports Next Size nutrition register here in the UK um, which is aligned with with you guys at the British Dietetic Association there is a degree of of, there's a peer group there and having it's you know I I guess we fear some people fear criticism from people but that in itself can be incredibly powerful for us as professionals to to be there and accept the constructive criticism or, or the mentorship from more experienced people in our own peer group and people that, in, that get into nutrition and who are not RDs or registered sports nutritionists and so on, they tend to be out there on their own or, you know, sort of finding solace in, in small groups of, of sort of practitioners, into, you know, that, that are sort of into all sorts of stuff. And, you know, we, we do get influenced by our, our peer group. I mean, how do you feel about that importance of peer review between professionals
1: uh, there's, there's a couple of things there, it's yeah. okay. Yeah. First one is that sort of isolation and sort of you tend to group with people with similar similar beliefs and structures rather than looking for a wider wider truth and you sort of, you know, social media is very guilty. And I've, I've spoken to um, sort of a, a dietitian who set up a podcast in New Zealand, at Convos, and we had a gl- long conversation about this idea of inflating your own ideological bubble by yeah. just talking to yeah. people. People like your, your ideas build up to it, whereas a good scientific approach would be to look across yeah. ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the other part about peer review and, and sort of my, my job is sort of mainly training dietitians and I find it ironic and we talk about it that our students go out in placement and they're constantly observed, given feedback, reviewed on their performance, but as soon as they get out of our doors after wearing the cap and gown as a graduate, it rarely happens. Yeah. Yeah. And... We shouldn't fear that. We should encourage that. And I've got a colleague who's working very much on communication skills in sort of interview settings. And the validated, it's their thesis, it's published, it's great stuff. And they've actually tried to challenge and break down this. is Why don't we do it? You know, Teachers peer review each other. As academics are lecturers, we observe each other lecturing and give feedback. But in practice as dietitians, it wouldn't happen. And why not encourage, you know... With, with the obviously consent of um, the client to have people not as sort of, you might have interns or people shadowing you, but why not have experienced people coming in? Because there's so much you can learn from each other. You just need to set down ground rules, have clear sort of review sort of things. Because your research, as we were saying, as a paper would go through that process, yeah. be critiqued, yeah. feedback given, but your actual individual consultations, when are they, when are they ever done? yeah. When do you ever actually get full feedback out of the way from a
0: consultation? You know, something um, I did um, a couple of years ago, and I, I've been doing this for 25, 26 years or something, but I only did this a couple of years ago. I actually surveyed my own clients and asked them, what do you think about me? <laughs> it was interesting. I mean, in some cases, I was like, well, why have you kept coming back? Um, but it is actually, it's a really, really, I mean, it's difficult to do to ask people, look, I don't, I'm not going to have an issue with you. Just tell me what you think about how I'm doing things. You know, how do you feel about what I'm doing? And that has been such a good thing that I've done between peers of professionals and clients and even personal people. It, it's a, I mean, I guess it's part of that reflective process, isn't it? That being a reflective yeah. practitioner is... It's difficult because there's a degree of vulnerability that, you you, you know, I think we all have that. You don't want to hear bad stuff, but actually it can be the best thing. Because at the end of the day, if you don't know, you can't fix it, right? Right?
1: And and the ultimate thing is, how do you actually learn from if you believe everything you do is good? Yeah, 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 totally agree. The best learners are are the people that make mistakes. You know, if, you, if you're working as an educator, the skill is trying to allow them to make safe, mistakes in a safe environment, which nurtures learning. Um, in a professional situation, you can be a little less supported, but that's when having a network of peers who say, look, I did this really badly the other day, I got some awful feedback, what do you think? Yeah. Or would you yeah. mind coming and me because I'm, I'm losing confidence here, and actually have a supportive learning environment, you know, uh, sort of working with hospitals in this job. Some of the hospitals, the way they've changed since... Uh, The uh, Francis Report is amazing. They are such open learning cultures. The idea is in the NHS now, in in, in England, if a hospital isn't reporting enough incidents or errors that's considered a problem. Brilliant. (laughs) Because we know humans make errors. The idea is to keep them as safe and as small and not impacting on on, on, on patients. So it might be yeah you know, they 've had to reorder someone 's meal because it didn 't quite arrive right, but the patient didn 't actually know but they 've got systems in place to control things and learn from them yeah and we should always learn from what we do and, and, and you know, I think it 's if you think you 're great and you don 't make mistakes you 're never going to learn and it 's going to be hard for you to improve yeah
0: yeah no, I'm, I agree with you I, I reflect you know upon my many years of doing stuff and i 've made some personal and professional whoppers of mistakes, but I've learned from them, and it is, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing all right now, and, and it's because of that, and I, I, I think sometimes the more inexperienced or younger practitioners are too afraid of making a mistake. Obviously, you don't want to go out there and deliberately make a mistake, but there's nothing wrong with making a mistake, as long as you learn to recognize it, and then and then try and do something about it. And, um, and that's where I think the peer group comes in. You know, find people who, who you can talk to, who you can get advice from. And that's, I mean, mentorship is a whole other podcast, really. But that, that's, yeah. that's the beauty of being part of a bigger professional group, I
1: think. Yeah, and, and an open group. And I, th- yeah. I think we we'll probably need to say the caveats, as long as the mistakes aren't illegal or life-threatening. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, we probably just need yes. to do that for legal purposes. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. By making, yeah. you know, we, we should accept that things are not always right no. and no. we're never going to get them perfect but it's learning, improving with, with the, the consumer, the client's best interests yeah. at heart. Absolutely. And they should Absolutely. be involved in the process as well because you know, they're going to value someone that's open and honest with them that, yeah, okay. what we did there didn't quite work for you. I think this is where it didn't work. Let's, you know, let's work on, on something new that you're happy with. Yeah. No, excellent. Look,
0: uh, Dwayne. That's, um, I think that brings us to the end of this podcast. We have talked about all kinds of things that I think are really important for practitioners and coaches, and revolving around you know being an evidence based practitioner. But lots of little tangents that do I think all relate quite well. Um, if people want to know a bit more about uh, your work and so on, do you? I mean, I know you have a website at your um, your university, uh, and you're on Twitter. Would you mind sharing?
1: how people can learn a bit more about you and your work so, so you can find me on twitter i'm sort of regularly there sort of challenging people who don't present evidence or make claims that are uh, sort of don't necessarily stand up to to where they fit with advertising legal Legal things, and that's uh, I think I've changed it to at Dr. Dwayne R. D. Yeah. Uh, it's on my Twitter handle. Um, partly out of rebellion because I've got a PhD, so I think I should actually use it, even though I'd never use it in real life. Um, also, quite easy to find on LinkedIn and through the uh, School of Biosciences website at the University of Nottingham. I've got a page probably needs a little bit of update because there's been a few more papers since that. Yeah, done. well, you're on uh, ResearchGate as well. I noticed this morning, so. Yeah. Oh, I've got mixed feelings about research geek It's a good way of archiving things. Yeah. Um, you get a lot of media.
0: notifications. It's sort of the Facebook
1: for, uh, for researcher geeks, isn't it? It's interesting. Uh, there's also academia.edu, which emails you when someone's Googled you, which is always fun. Oh, But you, you need to get too paranoid about it.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, mate. Well, look, thank you very much for your time
0: today. It's been great talking to you and sh- you know, sharing with us your... Your expertise. Um, I'd love to get you back on again. You know, we can talk about diabetes and chocolate. Um, that's got to be a that's got to be a great one. I can't imagine doing doing research on chocolate. That must have been fascinating. So, um, but I, of course, am um, Laurel Bannock, and I. Um, if you want to learn more about this uh, podcast, you just uh, go to guruperformance.com and just click on podcast. There will soon. I keep promising this, but there will soon be a page per podcast with information and links about um, the topics we've discussed and the guest experts that I've had on the show. But um, look forward to bringing another, another episode back to you all very soon. So, once again, thank you, Dwayne.
1: Thank you.